recording on your end and we will get okay three two one david i believe yes we are live welcome right. excellent good to be with you Baruz. thank you thank you david thank you i'm just going to make sure we are indeed live uh so i'm just checking on various places to see that it is going live so for you uh, at home or at work depending on where in the world you are welcome I am with Dr. David Katz. Um, I will join you in a moment. So um, welcome, welcome David and welcome for you, the viewer or the listener. Um, welcome to The Entrepreneur's Doctor. I'm joined by Dr. David Katz, who is a legend in the world of public health. For those of you who know, he's the founder and CEO of Diet ID. Uh, we'll be talking all about innovation, entrepreneurship, the role of lifestyle, nutrition, you know, physical activity, these kinds of behavioral issues when it comes to the world of COVID-19. And if you're at home in any sector, any professional background, you may be a patient even, or a person in the community, a carer that has seen a problem in the health sector and have thought of ways that it could be improved, then you may actually be thinking along the lines of launching your own startup or business in the health sector. Do check out the link below um, where you'll be getting tips for success. Um, David, it's a real honor to have you on the show. You know, for those of us uh, in the world of health, we know all about you. For those of us in entrepreneurship and in innovation, I think you might be a fairly new name uh, to some. Um, so just for introduction, I'll, I'll just share what I know about you and how you've been helping me, if that's okay, very briefly, and, and I'll come to you. You know, for that's 20... Thank you, David. I mean, for 20 years, you were at Yale University's uh, Prevention Research Program, um, I actually almost applied to Yale for the residency training in, in preventive medicine. You were the past president um, of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. Um, and that's where I got to know you. And back then, it was about 2012, I believe, I was still at the US CDC, Centers for Disease Control. And I was thinking of coming back to the UK at the time to uh, launch what was new and emerging in, uh, in the UK and Europe, which was lifestyle medicine. And you and I worked together to help with the Global Lifestyle Medicine Alliance, if you, if you remember, and then the True Health Initiative. And that has the likes of Dr. Dean Ornish, Professor Walter Willett from Harvard, and, and the former uh, Surgeon General back then in uh, President Obama's administration. So that was uh, Regina Benjamin. So enough about me talking. I'd love to hear all about you. And the first thing that I'd love to say is you were on Bill Maher's show and I love the guy. So <laughs> how is that? How is it just being on his show, David? It was it was great. Well, first of all, thanks for the, the kind intro, Bruce. And I, I've obviously very much appreciated our relationship across all these different activities. And they're, they're all really important. And as you say, uh, lifestyle medicine, you know, it, it's a movement. The, the American College of Lifestyle Medicine is the fastest growing medical college in the United States by far. And there are sister organizations now all around the world. Lifestyle Medicine is thriving in the UK. You know, and, and we'll talk more about that, but you know, there, there's a huge value proposition there. And, and you're also quite right, 30 years in academia, I'm, I'm a newbie as an entrepreneur. Uh, I've been running my company now for five years and, and you know, we're starting to have a significant impact. Uh, but still, yeah, I, I think you're, you're quite right. I'm, I'm not well known in that world and I appreciate this opportunity to address an audience. Uh, so Bill Maher was great. I mean, he's obviously a super smart guy, very sharp. Um, and you know, if you're gonna do an interview with him, you have to be prepared for provocation. Generally a good idea you know, to, to just 
to approach, kind of take a deep breath, get centered, relax, and really think of any interview like this one for that matter. You know, it's, it's a conversation. You know, I think people often feel differently about a conversation because there's a, you know, they could be at a coffee table, they do absolutely fine, but aim a camera at them and, you know, their mouth gets dry and their tongue sticks to the roof of their mouth. So I, I'm pleased to say I'm not that way. Um, I have a very extensive media portfolio. I worked on air for Good Morning America for a couple of years and uh, logged lots of TV time. And so even if you're in a studio and you got people hovering around you, I'm fine with that. You know, this was from home via Zoom. It, it really was a conversation. It's just a conversation. You know, a lot of people are watching <laughs> and, and it's with someone who's quick and sharp and provocative, but I like that. So, you know, I think he's a super smart guy. Uh, you know, he's edgy, uh, but I think in a good way, uh, you know, his, his political views are, he wears them on his sleeve. Uh, if you don't like them, you don't need to watch him, but you know, he, he doesn't tolerate folly very well. So, you know, he's going to, if you don't give him substantive answers, he's going to push on you. I liked all of that. I, you know, I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed the experience. I, I, think, I think he's terrific. And you know, his monologues are routinely brilliant. I mean, they're often fall out of your chair funny, but also really insightful. That's a rare combination. And David, when I was living in the States, uh, I was watching him, you know, on a weekly basis on HBO. And I do miss that now. I'm, I'm in the UK. There are ways I can catch it. But, you know, one yeah. thing I'd love to thank you for is, you know, as a someone, you and I were both public health uh, preventive medicine physicians, and that's typically not on the front lines of healthcare. It's behind the scenes, typically, unless you're a one-to-one -one preventive medicine physician or lifestyle, for that matter. Um, but you went back to be on the front lines when it came to the pandemic, when it hit New York City. So I'd love to thank you for that, first of all. And it's, it's amazing how um, you didn't acquire COVID at all when you were there on the front lines. And now you're just recovering, aren't you? How was I, I, I am. Yeah, well, so thank you. You know, that, that, that's, uh, it, it sort of makes me think of Edmund Burke, uh, you know, the famous quote uh, for evil to prevail in the world is enough for good people to do nothing. Well, it's not just evil, you know, I mean, basically anytime a, a good person has an opportunity to contribute good in the world, we should try. And it, you know, in a situation where the medical system in my part of the world was overwhelmed and I'm a clinician. So I, before I trained in preventive medicine, I trained in internal medicine and I did patient care for 30 years. So I'm fully qualified, licensed to practice. I've just retired from patient care to move on to other ways to try and make a difference in the world. But I still had that skill set. So yeah, I came out of retirement to volunteer. And I thought, look, my my individual contribution, you know, about a week's worth of time in an emergency department in the Bronx during near near the peak there is a very nominal contribution. But if 5,000 people like me do the same, it starts to add up to something quite meaningful. So that was my hope. I, you know, I, I always knew I would just be a drop in the bucket, but I thought I can and therefore I should. But yeah, I made it through, you know, weeks worth of shifts and in, uh, in an emergency department in the Bronx during the surge and didn't get COVID. And I am, as you say, just recovering. So over the recent holidays, we had uh, three of our adult children home and everybody had been COVID free and tested and negative. And here's what I think happened. I actually wrote about this, but it was in one of my columns uh, for one of my daughter's birthdays, six of us went out to dinner in New Haven. We were all in our bubble. The friend who joined us had had COVID and fully recovered. 
the rest of us had been tested, were negative, and were taking all relevant precautions. And we did all the right things at the restaurant. We wore our masks to the restaurant. We sat in our alcove. We had plexiglass around us. I think all that was fine. But we went outside on the street and it was just us. And we were you know, sort of go, about to head off in different directions. We took off our masks. And we were sort of accosted by a, a homeless person who was asking for money, which you know, in any major city anywhere in the world is not that much of a surprise. But obviously he was not masked. And you know, he just kind of popped up out of nowhere and we had our masks off. And you know, had this been a very fleeting encounter, it might've been fine, but we didn't have cash. You know, these days, more often than not, all you've got is plastic. We weren't gonna give away a credit card, but we did have leftovers and we offered the food and he became irate, you know, instead of saying, yeah, I'll take it because he clearly wanted money Gosh. to feed some other habit. So he got very belligerent and was kind of up in our faces. And my son, it, you know, is just an incredibly compassionate, decent human being and didn't think about his own well-being and, and didn't think about COVID, but just, you know, was trying to convey to this person, look, we care. There's just not that much we really can do. Is there a way we can help? And so I think I think that's when my son got it. He was the first to test positive, And then the rest of us fell like dominoes. And so we all got it, all five of us, the kids pretty much. And, and when I say kids, these are adults. They're just young adults. They pretty much breezed through it. They felt crummy for a few days. They all lost their olfaction. It came back completely. They got better. My wife and I, you know, we're, we're, you know, we've got an extra generation on them. And uh, predictably, then we got sicker. Um, my wife is now about a month out. I'm about three weeks out. Uh, she is. She thinks she's pretty much fully recovered, with the exception of olfaction, which we all lost completely. And, and by the way, it, it truly is bizarre. You can talk about it. It's a completely different thing to experience it. You know, your sense of smell turns off like a light switch. It's just a. It's. It's freaky because you know it's a sense you've had your entire life. It, it's not quite as dramatic as going blind or deaf because we rely on those more. But similar, you know, just this this sensory experience of the world that's always been a part of you just turns off. It's bizarre. So um, she's now at about she thinks eighty percent back, uh, and you know we expect a full recovery. I'm at about twenty or thirty percent. Uh, so I've got a ways to go, and I continue as I told you before we started the uh, recording. I continue to have episodic headache and and fatigue. And, and that's one of the bizarre things about COVID. You'll feel like you're completely better. And then the next day, the bottom drops out again, and you're just exhausted, and your head's in a cloud. And, and that's different from the flu. I've, I've had flu in my life. I, I get vaccinated routinely, but you know, nonetheless, I've had flu a time or two. And you, you're sick, and then you get better, and then you're done being sick. And you may have lingering fatigue, depending on how sick you were. But but this idea that the symptoms seem to be done and then they come back and then they seem to be done and then they come back again, that, that's been odd. Um, mm. But I think this is important to note, Bruce, you know, I, the, the particular position I mapped out with regard to COVID from the start, first of all, argued that we need to be, think, we need to be thinking about total harm minimization, that you know, one way the pandemic can hurt people is the virus infecting them, but there's a whole another suite of ways the pandemic can hurt people. And that's the ill effects of lockdown and isolation, desperation, destitution, the social determinants. And I thought the best way to minimize the total harm was to risk stratify the population and develop policies accordingly. We are not all at the same risk. 
And I would argue that, that my family's experience with COVID is exactly concordant with that policy platform. So first of all, my healthy adult children, young people went through this, you know, very, very minimal illness. My wife and I are obviously significantly older, but in very good health. And this was a, you know, is a mild illness. It's not fun by any means, but we were never in any danger. We didn't need any medication. We didn't need to see a doctor. There was never any question about needing a hospital. It was mild illness. Um, and exactly what I would have predicted. I'm old enough. I'm 58. I'm male. You know, those are risk factors for more severe disease, but I'm a lifestyle medicine expert who practices what he preaches. My health is perfect. So I had a very mild illness. And, you know, so I, I fit nicely. My family fits nicely into the story. This is a disease that's significant. We need to respect it. We need to take it seriously. This sure as hell is no hoax, as some people have contended. But on the other hand, it's not a one-size-fits-all threat. And I, you know, I, I think we could have, should have, and next time ought to do more nuanced public health responses. We really, we, we ought to match the remedy to the magnitude of the threat. And the magnitude of the threat is highly variable. Yeah. David, thanks for sharing your story. And I'm really glad you're, you and your family are doing better now and getting, you know, re fully recovering. In terms of, you know, as you know, I'm here now, I'm one of the directors of public health with the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine. And I, I wish I could have done more with them. I've just been so busy with the COVID uh, response. And I'm just curious, you mentioned lifestyle medicine. Uh, for those of us who are listening and maybe new to this concept, how could it actually help with not only your resilience uh, against uh, COVID-19, if you were to acquire it, but more importantly, how can it be used in terms of policy, in terms of uh, recovery and future you know, pandemic preparedness? Huge issues. So I, I've actually published a couple papers with colleagues during the pandemic in the Journal of Emerging Infectious Disease. And uh, credit to Mary Adams, my colleague who does the heavy lifting and she's the, the lead author. And we were looking at the salient cardiometabolic risk factors for bad COVID outcomes and their distribution in the population. So to be clear, one thing that makes it likely that if you get COVID, it's gonna be bad is age. And you can't change your age. If you're 82, you're 82. But that's just your chronological age. Your health basically converts that into your biological age. And, and by the way, interesting aside here, Baruz, you know, you are uh, as aware and, and supportive of the Blue Zone experience as I am. So, you know, those five places around the world described by National Geographic fellow Dan Buettner, where people most routinely live to be 100, don't get chronic disease, experience long-term vitality. My understanding from colleagues who probed the COVID data in the Blue Zones is that being 80 in a blue zone is like being 60 anywhere else. So, you know, although in a sense, chronological age is not modifiable, it kind of is because 80 is not the same in every population where people routinely live to be 100 and are healthy until 100. You're a spring chicken at 80 and their experience of COVID is not nearly as bad as octogenarians in other parts of the world. But along with age, which we could argue is or isn't modifiable, comes a suite of factors that clearly are and they massively alter the risk of bad outcomes if you get COVID. So whether or not you get exposed to COVID is a different matter, but if you do, are you going to wind up in the hospital? Are you going to wind up in the ICU? Are you going to wind up on a ventilator? Are you going to die? 
massive shifts, multi, many multiples yeah. based on do you have obesity, yes or no, and how severe is it? Do you have hypertension, yes or no, and how well controlled is it? Do you have type 2 diabetes, yes or no, and what's your glycohemoglobin? Do you have dyslipidemia or coronary disease, and is it well managed? And it's the basic cluster of cardiometabolic factors that are A, hyperendemic in the modern world, true in the UK, true in the US, true in the modern world in general, and incredibly responsive to lifestyle as medicine. And, and just a quick flashback, my career trajectory really began in 1993. I, I finished my training in internal medicine in 1991, went to Yale to train in preventive medicine, graduated that program in 1993. And within a few months of my completion of my preventive medicine residency and my master's in public health, a paper came out in JAMA, Journal of the American Medical Association, which to this day, so it's, you know, almost 30 years ago, I consider the seminal publication of the modern era. And the, the, the title was Actual Causes of Death in the United States. Now that's a bit ethnocentric, but it could just as easily have been actual causes of death in the modern world. They, they looked at US data, but it's the epidemiology of modern living. And, and what the two authors, Bill Fagy and Mike McGinnis did was say, look, the stuff that gets listed on death certificates as cause of death is the proximal cause of death. So, you know, you died of a myocardial infarction, you died of congestive heart failure, you died of a severe emphysema or cancer. But that's not really the cause of death that we can do anything about. You know, that, that's the immediate cause of death. But what caused that? Really, these causes that are listed on death certificates are effects. And what McGinnis and Fagy did was ask the question, effects of what? What's causing the causes? because that's the stuff we can do something about. And they, you know, in that famous paper, they enumerated a list of 10 factors, which basically explained all of the annual premature deaths, but for a rounding error. But what fascinated me was just three factors all by themselves accounted for 80%. And they were tobacco use, poor diet, lack of physical activity. So this is not related to COVID. This is in general, but it, it, what it does is it immediately tells you the unbelievable power of lifestyles medicine. So bad use of feet, forks, and fingers explains 80% of the premature deaths that occur every year in the U.S. and around the modern world. Well, you know, we now know that all of those same factors responsive to lifestyle, cardiometabolic disease, are major influencers of COVID outcomes. So, so here's the thing. I, I've argued, and, and I, I don't know that anybody's been, you've been listening, Bruce. I don't know about any, my mother's been listening. I, I think I've had an audience of about two. Uh, but I've argued throughout the pandemic that the single most glaring blind spot in our policy response is the failure to engage our populations in a massive let's all get healthy together now campaign. Because you know, th this is what we in preventive medicine call a teachable moment. A, a teachable moment in an individual patient is usually the aftermath of some calamity. You've had a heart attack, you've had a stroke, and all of a sudden you say, I I'm scared to death, tell me what I can do. And, you know, we who do preventive medicine, you know, we sort of roll our eyes. It's the stuff I've been telling you for the last 20 years, and you weren't paying any attention to me because you weren't scared to death. We kind of have that on a massive scale now. Everybody's acutely afraid of COVID. Well, it turns out the best things you can do to not be at risk of a dreadful COVID outcome is all the stuff we've been talking about forever anyway. Eat well, be active, don't smoke, get enough sleep, manage your stress, cultivate good, healthy relationships. Lifestyle is medicine. 
and you know, massive influence on immune system function, massive influence on cardiometabolic risk factors. And those benefits begin almost immediately. And we can talk more about that if you like, but a single high quality meal improves immunity relative to a meal of hyper-processed junk. A single bout of walking or other exercise improves immune responses relative to two hours spent on the couch. And then the benefits obviously accrue over time. So you can get an immediate benefit, but you can build on that benefit. And by the way, you're not just defending against the acute threat of COVID, you're cultivating vitality, which is the gift that keeps on giving over time. So I, I think this is really the single greatest missed opportunity to date in the crisis. Yes, we should risk stratify the population. Yes, our policy should have been directed at different levels of risk. All of that was very important. But I've seen almost no high level dialogue about what an incredible opportunity, what a wake up call we've all had. The reason for the high mortality toll in the US, the reason for the high mortality toll in the UK is many things, but among them, the high burden of chronic disease and cardiometabolic liabilities we carried with us into this crisis. And this crisis is shining an acute spotlight on those liabilities and saying, fix them now. Fix them now for an acute benefit, fix them now for a lasting benefit. This is that teachable moment. David, um, something just to reassure you a little bit um, is that I think you and I agree on this, you know, in terms of who the players are in, in term, you know, to, to promote health and well-being of individuals and populations, they're all over the place. It's not just your doctor or your healthcare provider, they're, they're in all sorts of settings. And, um, you know, it's this health in all sectors and all policies approach. And and it's also about all sorts of time points in your life uh, course from being a child. And that's where a lot of your uh, lifestyle habits develop as, as you know better than I do. I've learned a lot of what I know today from you actually. I used your textbook to teach medical students. Um, but for me, and this is what pushed me into the world of supporting entrepreneurs. I've been doing this informally. You are an entrepreneur and we'll get onto your work in a moment. Um, but for me, it's been, you know, I've seen a lot of entrepreneurs get into the world of health, but they don't necessarily have all the knowledge or experience on the ground or in terms of the concept. So it's all about how can we work together to make sure we use your skill set, your mindset and your experience in other sectors and apply that to the problems we have on the ground. And to reassure you, uh, you know, I've been on Clubhouse, the latest social platform, uh, David, and the conversations that I've been having over the last, over the weekend are, are phenomenal. People are actually entrepreneurs, innovators. They're actually talking about these issues. They're mm. not talking about the regular things that are on the headlines every day. They're talking about lifestyle related issues, nutrition, diet, social determinants of health. So I, I love it. And That's so, excellent. yeah. And so I, just to reassure you, and then to, to kind of empower those of you who are at home, is you know you can take action and actually implement some of these things. You don't have to wait for someone to tell you, and that's what entrepreneurs are all about. They take action once they see an opportunity. So David, I totally agree. Yeah. yeah. So if, Bruce, if I just to, to react, I, I, in one of my columns some some while back, I, I wrote about hierarchical responsibility. I, I have lamented for years the divide in public health, public policy, and politics between personal responsibility and collective accountability, um, because we need both. Uh, you know, there are a lot of things that individuals can do to protect themselves and their health, but the choices people make are always subordinate to the choices people have. And the choices people have 
emanate from decisions made by the body politic. There are a lot about social environments and physical environments and, and policies. So we need good supportive policies. We need well-informed, empowered individuals doing the right thing. We need personal responsibility. We need public accountability. And there is a job for everybody in the mix. There's a job for government. There's a job for private institutions. There's absolutely a job for innovators and entrepreneurs. And then there's a job for individuals. And we really only maximize our chances at wellness when everybody plays their role. So, you know, individuals, there's a part of this they have to do. I mean, nobody's going to eat on your behalf. Nobody's going to exercise on your behalf. On the other hand, whether or not you can get access to good food or know what good food is, uh, that may not be up to you. Whether or not there's a safe place to be active outdoors may not be up to you. So we're all in this together. And anywhere entrepreneurs and innovators look at a comprehensive array of obligations and identify rate limiting absence of resources, you know, lack of access to the best option, it's an invitation to build what's missing, invent what doesn't exist, fix what's broken. And, uh, you know, I think that's in our DNA. And it's interesting, you know, so I, I, I was an academic physician for 30 years before becoming an entrepreneur. But I think the motivation is the same. Doctors fix what's broken. I think mm -hmm. entrepreneurs basically do the same thing. You know, you look, you see, hey, there's an unmet need here. And by the way, it's an opportunity. And I think the opportunity part's fine. I, you know, I think it's perfectly reasonable to do well by doing good because it's actually doing well that sustains your ability to keep doing good. You know, money is the fuel. And if you're doing well and you can monetize your contribution to public health, you can sustain it, which in academia is really hard to do. We get a grant, we run a project, the grant runs out and the project goes away. Entrepreneurs, I think, really offer an opportunity to identify ways to fix what's broken that's sustainable because, hey, we can actually monetize this. Everybody wins. You know, my company makes money by generating this service. This service is really valuable. Pe people appreciate it, derive a benefit from it. Everybody wins. I, I think that's really a good thing. One other quick comment, Bruce, because sure. you, you mentioned the issue that, that, you know, you might not have relevant content knowledge as an entrepreneur. I agree. It's another example of how we need one another. So, you know, the, the academic experts may not be the ones who develop the real world innovations. They may be in an ivory tower, but in that ivory tower, they may have rarefied knowledge and you wanna take full advantage of that. So, you know, maybe, maybe their contribution is publications on here's what's true. And then they count on innovators and entrepreneurs to take what's true and make it do good in the real world. I'd like to offer a resource to everybody listening. I, I founded uh, some years ago, a nonprofit, the True Health Initiative you can learn all about it at truehealthinitiative.org. But our, our basic reason for existing is to represent the confluence of science, sense, and global expert consensus regarding lifestyle as medicine. So what are the fundamentals of a health-promoting diet? What are the most important aspects of lifestyle as medicine? And so you don't need to be the one as the entrepreneur to come up with the basic content knowledge. You can look there as true north and say, okay, this is clearly what's what, but what can be done with this? How, how can people be reached with this? How can people be empowered with it? That's where you need to do what you do and invent whole new approaches, but you don't need to invent the basic content knowledge and you don't need to have that expertise. It's already established in the world. There are many representations of it, but I submit to you as one good one, truehealthinitiative.org. I love it. David, yeah, you know, you, 
everything you say is just gold. Um, and one cool thing that I was, when you talk about people coming together and working together, just this clubhouse, I have to just rave about it just one, one last time before I come back to you. Um, just in the last 24 hours, I was in a room that's been going on, and it's probably still going on now. I'll pop in after this call, but um, we had people from, like, from boards of Google Health, um, Best Buy Health or Best Buy Home Health, I think they've called it now, Argos in the UK, Oxford, uh, deans of medical schools, but more importantly, people who are actually patients, representative patients and carers, uh, physicians, entrepreneurs, all in the same room just talking about these things. So um, I love it. And I, I just want to ask you from maybe before we come on to your specific initiatives, David, um, from when you were on the front lines of the pandemic in New York City, in the Bronx, or more generally about these topics of lifestyle that you and I are talking about now, what are some opportunities that you'd love for innovators, entrepreneurs to get their hands on and, and help with? Well, you know, inevitably I'm focused on the incredible and largely neglected power of lifestyle as medicine. So, you know, I, I think the areas that are directly aligned with immediate need are telehealth, digital apps, digital therapeutics, you know, essentially everybody's at home, everybody's interacting via Zoom and, and so forth. So, you know, every advance in telehealth is perfectly aligned with the, the current zeitgeist. And, and frankly, telehealth has been advanced by the, the requirements of the pandemic. But you know, it, the limits to what we can do with online access to populations of people are the limits of imagination. Uh, culinary medicine, you know, it, it's one of the, the advances in the whole thinking about nutrition. We need to stop talking about biochemistry. That's not helping anybody. We need to give them recipes, show them how to cook. <clears throat> well, you know, essentially the, there are whole new ways to reach populations that are now coming together in places like Clubhouse. So, you know, social media, I, ha I haven't even tried yet. But, you know, social media, we, we can think, what are the best ways to get people to engage in, you know, online potluck dinners where they share high quality recipes? What are the best ways to engage people in, you know, group physical activity? And, and you know, we've seen some tremendous um, successes in that space, SoulCycle, Peloton, you know, Peloton's a, a unicorn, right? It's a billion dollar company now. <clears throat> and, you know, I think part of the reason is you're exercising alone in your home, but you're not part of a community. Uh, you know, I think you, you kind of say, right, what, what are the things that motivate people to engage in, in healthy living? And in unity, there is strength that a collective, uh, where social animals, a collective response to a challenge tends to make us better at it. It's really entrepreneurs who have figured out how to exploit that. That space is still wide open. Uh, there are lots of different ways to do it lots of different combinations. Um, you know, are there, are there ways to help people with relaxation via telehealth portals? Uh, are there family-oriented programs that have yet to be developed? How do we best engage kids? You know, they're, they're at home. They need educational programming. Uh, they've been doing school from home. They're also driving their parents crazy. And by the way, we don't want them sitting on the couch, watching TV, eating potato chips and gaining the COVID-19 how do we take advantage of a captive audience? And you know, what are the ways we can do edutainment? So we can entertain, captivate, engage, but also empower with good quality information. Uh, you know, I, I really think the opportunities are, are just about limitless. In particular, 
you know, I, I think there is more opportunity to address the acute anxiety of COVID with lifestyle responses and then pivot to the longitudinal benefit of, of lifestyle as medicine. So I would say move quickly. You've got a captive audience now. Everybody's acutely worried about their health. That's the teachable moment. But that's, you know, again, we, we will get through this pandemic. And, and when we do, these cardiometabolic liabilities are gonna matter for all the reasons they always did, but you'll have then the captive audience. If you've engaged them with good programming, they'll stick with you. You know, th this is the easiest part of, you know, the, the entrepreneurial space for me to talk about because it's, it's where I live. I imagine there are many other opportunities too. One of the things I'm not personally all that into, that's interesting, Jared Diamond coined this expression that invention is the mother of necessity. And, you know, entrepreneurs are good at that, right? I mean, you just think about our, our smartphones. They keep coming up with, you know, their new apps and new things these, thing, these, they, these devices do. Do we really need all that stuff? You know, I don't, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that we can do that I don't know that we need to do. So invention is the mother of necessity. I really still like the time honored, let's have necessity, true necessity, be the mother of invention. Okay, you know, if someday we've invented so much stuff that there is no more necessity, and now you want invention to come first, okay, fine. But we're not there yet. There's a lot of genuine necessity. We have, we had pandemic obesity, we had pandemic hypertension, we had pandemic type two diabetes, we had pandemic coronary artery disease before ever we had pandemic COVID. And these pandemics are greater pandemics. More people are dying from these cardiometabolic conditions around the world every year than from COVID. Well, that's necessity. Entrepreneurs should be looking at that long and hard and thinking, how do I make a contribution? Because this, this is right for do well by doing good. Completely agree with you, David. And um, I'm mindful that you're still recovering, so feel free to have a, have a sip of water if you've got <laughs> it. I'll you. just I'll just share something briefly as well. Uh, before now learning more about what you're doing at Diet ID as well as Everest. So, um, with you know talking about necessity, I think one area of need, and this is when I work with entrepreneurs, I try to help them in terms of uh, getting adopted their idea and innovation adopted. Uh, but also the diffusion and the scaling of that innovation and, and startup needs work with the, the community of uh, physicians, payers, insurers, all these players. Um, but it's addressing needs. Most people, as you said, they've got a solution. They're all, all about the solution and they're not thinking ahead about um, what it takes to actually diffuse. And one of it, as you said, is the, a, a problem to be solved. Another one, it's how you do the marketing, isn't it? It's the uh, creating a movement and things like Peloton you mentioned. And one area that I really am passionate about is early childhood and childhood health. And with COVID-19, it's a disaster. We all know this. I'm not talking about the response, just the whole, it's war. We yeah. can't predict what's happening. And the from homeschooling to all sorts of other aspects, the adverse childhood experiences and the impact of that on lifestyle related behaviors, let alone high blood pressure, anxiety, depression, suicide later in life as well. There are statistics out there, David, that I've, I've forgotten what it is, but several million, just in the US, several million cases of uh, MI, like dying from heart attack, 
could have been prevented by addressing the adverse childhood experiences. So we really need to target that. And one entrepreneur here in the UK, I don't know if you know him, is Joe Wicks, who's uh, as soon as everyone was homeschooling back in March, April of last year, um, during the first round of lockdown in the UK, he was on YouTube and basically helping parents uh, get their children physically active at home by doing PE, physical activity classes on YouTube live. So at least your kids are out of the way and they can be looked after by a safe pair of hands. But he would also get the parents in as well and get them involved. Um, and often, and the last thing I'll say before coming to you, David, is often if we're looking from a public health uh, perspective, we're looking about um, what are the best ways into to a household? We talk about as soon as someone gets COVID-19, for example, it can quickly transmit the infection to other members of the household. Similar thing comes with motivation and inspiration in terms of health promoting behaviors. And often the way in is through schools, through other means like Joe Wicks and whoever else uh, to the children. And they then are the inspiration for the parents at home. Uh, trust me, my five-year-old gets me moving. <laughs> so David, back to you. Uh, amen. You... A amen. <laughs> no, no, no. Really, Bruce, amen to all of that. Couldn't agree more. And yeah. absolutely, I, I think you're quite right. I think, uh, you know, I hadn't even specifically thought about innovations in programming specifically for children as a means to address the acute psychological duress of the situation and to enhance their health and to effectively use the kids as portals to the household. Yeah. Just, just so you know, over the years at the Prevention Research Center at Yale, we developed two programs. Um, we, we published pretty extensively on both of them. So we tested these randomized intervention trials, the whole bit um, that I think are right in that sweet spot you're describing. Uh, one is called Nutrition Detectives. It's a food label literacy program. So essentially teaches eight and nine-year-olds how to identify more and less nutritious foods in every category and why they should care. And what we found, we did a large randomized trial uh, in two school districts. We never talked to the parents, we just intervened in the kids, but we tested the knowledge change in the parents of the kids that we reached with the program. And it was massive. There's a huge statistically significant difference between the food label literacy of the parents of kids who got this program and the parents of kids who did not. And then, you know, what we heard for years, we made this program freely available. We've given out 50,000 DVDs before it was just, you know, now everybody gets it streaming online. Uh, so we don't know how many millions of kids around the world we've been reaching, but we've had feedback that it's being used in countries all around the world. And the benefit clearly pertains equally to the parents as to the kids, but the kids, they get the program and then they, they become activists. They, you know, they, they basically say, we can't get that product. It's got you know, the high fructose corn syrup in it. And, and they force the parents to make the better choice. And then the other program we developed similarly is called ABC for Fitness, which stands for Activity Bursts in the Classroom. Nice. And this was a, a multidisciplinary effort involving experts in pedagogy uh, and physical activity and, and PE. And essentially what we did was we, we developed a comprehensive approach to intermittent activity bursts that could be doled out to kids at any age in the classroom throughout the day. So even if they didn't have time for formal PE or recess, they could still get at least 30 minutes. And then we superimposed on these various activities, teaching pedagogy that went well with the motion. You know, one of the interesting things we learned from experts in psychology is that motion that crosses the midline of the body 
activates both cerebral hemispheres and enhances retention and cognition. So we were looking to actually improve physical fitness to dissipate the restless energy of the kids, make them better learners, enhance their health, and, and actually improve the effectiveness of the teaching all to the bargain. And we published a paper showing all of those effects, improve fitness, better behavior in the classroom, reduce medication use, um, reduce medication use for attention deficit disorder. For many years, my rant was the proper remedy for rambunctiousness in children is recess, not Ritalin. And um, that these two programs are freely available to all. So you just Google ABC for fitness, nutrition detectives. But you know, we, we were a, a, a research lab at a university funded by the Centers for Disease Control. So we made our program, made this collateral freely available. There is no reason why better versions of these can't be developed by entrepreneurs and say, and by the way, you have to pay something because you know what you get is more than what you pay, but that way I win, you win, and what you pay me makes my business thrive and allows me to keep churning out these kinds of innovations. But really, amen, I, I think there's an enormous opportunity to think about the needs of kids, to think about the mitigation of adverse childhood experiences. And I completely agree with you. They reverberate through the decades and, and really have dire consequences. The, the best time for health promotion is early in life before anything's broken. Yes, absolutely, David. And um, there's other time points, as you know, about preconception, even before pregnancy, and there's definite evidence there. So I'm all for life course based approaches to, to lifestyle related diseases and, and yep, risk factors. Um, the, uh, you know, one thing we've got to be careful with things like um, digital health or, or, or any, yeah, these kinds of activities is not causing more disparities, because uh, that alone is a, is a determinant of poor health outcomes. And so when you talk about who pays, just like, you know, uh, Facebook and other things, you are the product, right? And it's free for you, but you're getting advertised to, perhaps getting this into the hands of children where it's still free for the children and the family so that you make sure everyone has access, but it's, it's other forms of generating the, the revenue. I think there are different ways to do it. I, I think, yeah. you know, advertisement is one. Uh, mm -hmm. I would just say you have to be really careful. Imagine you're doing a health promotion program for kids, but then the advertisers who step up or Kraft and Nestle sure. and they're advertising junk food and undermining the program. So, you know, I, I think you have to filter the advertisers so that they're confluent with the intent of the program. But I also think there are opportunities to run this through employers, uh, to mm -hmm. run this through corporations that have a, a social conscience that are reaching large populations, even to think in terms of the, you know, the health system paying the bills for programming that is essentially mitigating what will otherwise evolve into disease care expenditures. You know, a lot of in the U.S., of course, we have a more complex system of reimbursement. We're talking about insurance companies, and you know, it's a very different system than the U.K. But here, we can say, look, if you know, if you're if you're going to be liable for the expenses of hospitalization, and if you can just spend pennies on the dollar to do health promotion programming that reaches families, it's a good investment for you. You, you will you will derive a significant return and be doing good in the world. And again, it's an everybody wins scenario. I, I think there are innumerable expressions of this. We can all win together. We can save money, save lives, enhance health. Entrepreneurs can win. The clients are paying the bills, but they're actually saving money because you know the cost of your innovative programming is significantly less 
then the cost of business as usual and you know the drain on health and so forth. So I think there are lots of ways to, to put this all together, which is a nice segue for us to talk about diet ID because that's, yeah, that's what Please we're trying to do. Please tell me all about it. Yeah. So, uh, you know, for, for one thing, I, you know, I have to explain often to colleagues, you know, why the heck did I leave academic medicine after 30 years? And I think the simple answer is I'm a restless, impatient guy. And I, you know, in the fullness of time, I would like my epitaph to be the guy made a difference. And I haven't yet. I mean, you could argue I oh, have. I've influenced high school. <laughs> but see, that's the thing. It's interesting. I, and I, I really appreciate the kind words that, that you directed me and many colleagues do. But, but here's the simple fact of it, Baruz. When I started my career in preventive medicine, public health 30 years ago, my pledge to myself was, you know, I'm going to help, I'm going to do all I can be part of the remedy for pandemic obesity, pandemic chronic disease. And in order to take any credit for that, I need to see evidence that we have less obesity than when I started. We don't. Less chronic disease than when I started. We don't. We're losing the war. So, you know, I, I, I think if you're really honest with yourself, um, you look at the methods you're using and when they're not exerting a great enough impact, you say, what else can I do? Is there another way? So I, you know, I, I, I've always been consistent about the mission, leveraging lifestyle in particular diet to add years to lives, add life to years and do it in a way that's sustainable and healthy for the planet. That's, it's always been my mission. Um, but the best way to get there from here, I'm willing to try new things when the methods that were currently employing are not highly effective. So I'm an accidental entrepreneur just because I'm an impatient, restless guy who, you know, clear, I, I'm just honest with myself. We're not winning the war. We have a long way to go. So what we're doing at Diet ID, we, we've, you know, there's an expression from the world of business, interesting, interestingly, that we don't tend to manage what we don't routinely measure. And it's equally true in medicine. So, you know, in, in business, you have KPIs, you have, you know, all sorts of things you track to see how's the business doing, what's our market penetration, all that. Um, what's our SWOT analysis. In medicine, we talk about vital signs, critically important metrics that tell us, is this person safe or in danger? And, you know, what, what's broken and needs fixing. The single most potent predictor variable for all-cause mortality in the modern world is the quality of your diet. Yet how many of us have a comprehensive, robust assessment of our diet? It's a rounding error in the population, almost nobody. And the reason is the tools are horrible. They're onerous, they're time consuming. So you can fill out a semi-quantitative food frequency questionnaire. It will ask you how many times in the past six weeks or six months did you eat pasta? And by the way, what kind of pasta? And by the way, what was your serving size? And by the way, what was your sauce over the pasta? And by the way, what was your serving size of that? And you're expected to remember that for each occasion over the past six months. And that's a hopeless enterprise. And then you need to repeat that a thousand times for every other kind of food you've eaten in the past six months and nobody can do it. You literally go mad before you're done 90 minutes later. The alternative is, you know, tell me everything you ate yesterday you're gonna get that mostly wrong and you're gonna spin it to the positive and tell yourself little white lies and lie to me. So that's highly inaccurate. So these are the methods we use. So no wonder they're time consuming, they're tedious, they're memory dependent, they're terrible. So, you know, it was long overdue. Uh, we clearly had the necessity in public health, in patient care, in nutritional epidemiology and research. We, we long had the need for a better way to 
quickly, effortlessly, reliably, comprehensively assess diet. And I actually had an epiphany, you know, those are rare, but I, I, I was working out one day and this was five or six years ago. And this thing that became diet ID literally started to unfold itself in my mind, like origami in reverse. And, and at first I thought, well, you know, it just can't be this simple. I'm missing something. So I, I I'm fortunate. I, you know, some of the world leading nutrition experts are friends and colleagues. I checked in with them and they said, no, I think this could work. And when I say I'm an accidental entrepreneur, that's what I mean. I had an idea and the idea had merit and then, you know, we pushed on it and it was open space in terms of intellectual property and patent filings and all of that. But then the question became, as you were talking about, well, how do you deploy it and how do you diffuse it? And the next thing I knew I needed to found a business and, and bring together a team and I'm learning about, you know, financing rounds and all sorts of stuff I never thought I'd need to know about. But I, I, I thought, well, this, this could actually change the world. So we've reinvented dietary assessment for the digital age. We can comprehensively assess diet type, quality, nutrient intake level in about 60 seconds. It's image-based, it's easy, it's effortless, it's elegant, it's economical, it's infinitely scalable. It's a radically different approach. And we validated it against the existing tools. We also routinely ask every user, and there have been tens of thousands, you know, how, how did we get you? We consistently get an accuracy rating from our end users well above 90% on a visual analog scale, which is amazing. Um, so we're now looking to do everything we can with this innovation. Uh, and that means we want to make diet a vital sign. We think diet can and should be in every electronic health record. We think if we measure it routinely, we'll be motivated to do a better job of managing it. And we've built out a comprehensive platform where we don't just do dietary assessment, we help you identify a personalized goal diet. We can show you the specific delta, because if you've got two points, you can draw a line. What is your personal journey from where you are with diet to where you wanna be? And then we can populate that personalized route with a sequence of micro challenges that are incremental adjustments to your diet that like a turn list in GPS, step-by-step step will take you toward your goal. And then we can track your progress along the way. So we've deployed to about 50 clients so far, including health systems, but really quite an interesting diversity of clients. One of them is a major supplement maker in the United States who said, this is the best way we've ever seen to personalize nutrient supplement recommendations. You can tell us in 60 seconds what nutrients people are getting from their diet. We can look right at that and say, here's where you have deficiencies. Here are the products that will fill those gaps. You can improve your diet. Great. Go for it. But in the meantime, you're not getting enough of this nutrient, we sell this nutrient. So, you know, wide array of opportunities to address different issues. Ultimately, we want to completely transform nutritional epidemiology because this is a, you know, whereas right now, I mean, I'll give you an example from the US, we rely on the NHANES study, National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey run by the CDC to tell us what Americans eat and what the trends are. It's a representative random sample of several thousand Americans who do 24-hour recall. With Diet ID integrated into electronic health records, we could get real-time information, not from several thousand, but from 300 million people. And we could do it multiple times a year. I mean, we, we can have the, the richness of information we could have about dietary intake is phenomenal. So we want to be that. We, we see that you know, the, the potential of this thing to be transformational is, is quite incredible. 
But we don't want to just do it on our own. The, the other thing is, and this is an interesting challenge I've wrestled with as an entrepreneur, I don't want to reinvent stuff that people have already invented well. Imagine that what I, I have reinvented the wheel. Imagine I've come up with a tire and it's a better tire. I don't want to have to invent the car, but maybe the only way I can show people that my tire is better is to put it on a car. And maybe nobody who has a car is willing to lend me their car. I actually have to build a car just to demonstrate my tire. One of the challenges I found with Diet ID is, you know, we really are perfectly situated to be the chip inside. So you're doing diabetes prevention, you're doing coronary management, you're doing cardiac rehab, you're doing all this stuff we already do. We can make it better, stronger, faster because we can get you massively better dietary intake information at any frequency you like, much better for you, much better for the patient. We can track change without people needing to log everything they eat. It's just, you know, it's, it's, it's a great advance. We're, we're the Intel inside. We put our chip in your computer, everything works better. So we can do that. But what we found is to build the business, we often need to build the computer ourselves to show people how well the chip can work. So we, we find ourselves doing both. So we've actually built a comprehensive behavior navigation platform where we can find your diet now, we can show you your goal diet, we can show you the Delta, we can use our app to navigate you from here to there. We can track your progress. We can do it all by ourselves. But we're also perfectly happy to say, if you just want our assessment and tracking function, we'll integrate it into your digital therapeutic and we'll be better together. One plus one will equal three. So that's what we do. And we do have direct relevance to the pandemic because as we were discussing before, diet and lifestyle have a massive influence on cardiometabolic health, which is hugely relevant to COVID. And they have an immediate relevance to the immune system. That issue is distorted in both directions. You know, on the one hand, hucksters will, will you know, make you think, you know, just take my product and enhance your immune system. And usually that's, that's not true. But on the other hand, the, the mainstream medical community often dismisses the importance of what nutrition and nutrients can do. And that's also not true. It, it just stands to reason that you know, diet is the fuel that runs every organ system in the body quality of that fuel has a major impact on the performance of every organ system, including the immune system. So optimizing overall diet quality can begin to enhance your immune system response today within hours. And then that, that effect can grow over time. So one of the health goals you can click on in diet ID to say, here's what I want to use diet to fix is immune system response. I want to optimize my dietary intake for the sake of my immune system. We offer those solutions. Here are the diets that the peer-reviewed literature say are best for that. Do you, you, want, to, you, you want to play the game and, and work on getting there from here? The final thing I'll say about this, Baruz, and I think this is another element that, that you know, kind of is at the interface of an academic physician for 30 years who now is an entrepreneur. As an entrepreneur, you think about not what people need, but what they want, right? You've got to sell it to them. Yeah. And we thought, you know, it, it, there's, it's overdue to change the concept of behavior modification. Behavior modification sounds like academics talking. It sounds like you're broken, we're here to fix you. That's not where the consumers live these days. The consumers live in a space where, hey, I want what I want when I want it. I want it personalized and customized. And so we've kind of retooled that and we call it behavioral navigation. It's like a GPS for health. You are the boss, you decide where you wanna go. But once you've made that decision, We'll just lay out the turn list. We'll help you get there from here. So we've, we've sort of repositioned the whole concept of behavior change for a modern, empowered, digital, personalized consumer. 
Love it. So I've put the link below in the description about Diet ID. I'll be reaching out to you after this call, uh, David. Great. Um, and I hope anyone listening, uh, you know, do reach out. I mean, it's a great opportunity. Just, um, I mean, just before I come to Everest Health, it'll be, I remember taking a class on uh, nutritional epidemiology from Professor Walter Willett, and I'd love to see him teaching this in his course. Um, so, and, and so, you know, yeah. Walt, Walter's a close friend and um, he's on the team that helped me develop this tool. And, nice. and when, I, when I said I turned to colleagues at the beginning, yeah. so the, the, the first people I call, I sent an email to Walter and Frank Hugh, who has succeeded Walter as uh, chair of nutrition at Harvard. And I mean, they're both close friends and we've worked together many times over the years. And I said, guys, can we get on a phone call, the three of us? I got an idea I want to run by you and I want you to tell me what's wrong with it. And it was really that phone call that was the launch of the business because we spoke for an hour and nice. they said, no, I, you know, I think this actually could work. And you know, once it passed the Walter Frank Hugh test, I said, okay, <laughs> I really have something here. Oh, that's great. So just to segue now, you, you mentioned earlier on our, in our conversation, and we're close to the end of this uh, episode, but um, we talked about, uh, or you talked about COVID age, and how does that go into your other um, venture? Yeah, so this is not my venture, but I'm very happy to, to give a shout out to my friends and, and associates at Everest Health, uh, E-V-E-R-I-S-T Health, and you can provide that link. So I actually have a longstanding relationship with them because in my years at the Prevention Research Center, we did endothelial function research. This is a measure of vascular health. We had a, we had a dedicated vascular lab, published a number of papers on that topic. And the folks at Everest Health were, were developing an automated way to capture this nuanced measure of endothelial function. And we were validating it by comparing it directly to the standard method that we were doing in our lab. So I've known them for years. And then what they're interested in doing is, is helping people understand their cardiometabolic health using that tool as part of the equation. But they were, they were poised for the pandemic to say, well, we can help people understand their COVID-related risks. So they, they took the kind of work they were already doing and directed it toward algorithms that they put together with epidemiologic data about COVID given different risk factors, what's the probability if you get COVID of hospitalization, ICU, ventilators, death? And you know, can we build an elegant tool with these algorithms hidden behind the curtain where people can enter whatever health information they have about themselves and in real time, we can immediately translate their chronological age into a COVID risk age. So your actual age is 68, but you're in perfect health I can use myself as an example. So I'm 58. I completed their calculator and my COVID risk age is about 38. You nice. know, because, so, you know, lifestyle is medicine, but it can go either way. You know, I mean, you could be a young person who has diabetes and coronary disease and your COVID risk age will be 20 or 30 years older than you are. And then depending on those deflections, your percent probability of bad outcomes if you get COVID varies significantly. But the beauty of this is it doesn't just show you what your risk is, which is helpful. It's helpful for individuals because it's not just an unknown risk. Oh my God, the sky is falling. It's here's your quantitative risk. And by the way, you can compare it to the risk of other things you do. The risk of getting hurt driving your car a certain number of miles every year, that kind of thing. But it's also useful for policymakers because, you know, for example, this late into the pandemic, okay, we can say everybody over 65 should get the vaccine but not everybody over 65 is at the same level of risk. While we're waiting to produce enough vaccines so everybody who needs it can get it, 
how do we further stratify within an age group? Well, this calculator is perfect for that. And so they're, they're currently marketing this to states and governors and you know, large institutions here in the US because we think that it can facilitate optimal vaccine distribution. But the part that I like best about it, I mean, I, I think all that's great, but what I like best about it is it actually shows you where your risk is coming from. And you can play with each of the individual entries in real time. So if you smoke and you dial down how much you smoke or you quit, you see what that would do to your risk. If you've got diabetes and your glycohemoglobin is poorly controlled, it shows you quantitatively how much do you reduce your risk of a bad COVID outcome if you can improve your glycemic control, if you lose weight, if you better manage your, your blood pressure and so forth. It's incredibly empowering. It basically takes people out of a place where it's the boogeyman. It's, you know, it's, it's a risk that could just jump out and get me to. No, it's a risk I can quantify, understand, and manage. I think that's fantastic. I, you know, it's, it's a great tool. So I think everybody should check it out, everesthealth.com. Nice. Yeah, absolutely. And it feels like if you're touching and playing and tweaking your dashboard, uh, it, it really gets into your nervous system in a way as well. And uh, exactly. And it, and it tells you, wow, I, I really, and then, you know, I like obviously the, the synergy of, okay, so, you know, they tell you what your risk is and where you want to focus your efforts. And then those of us who do lifestyle medicine, what we do at Diet ID, we say, okay, well, diet's a big part of that. Come to us, we'll help you fix it. So sort of a one-two punch as it were there. I'm going to ask you one last question, David. I'm mindful of your time and uh, you're, you're a busy guy. So um, you are the lifestyle medicine doctor that I would turn to any day. Um, and, you know, you re you're prolific. I've seen you on Dr. Oz, Bill Maher, I mentioned earlier. And in terms of, uh, I mean, you, you're all over the place in terms of writing articles. Every day you're writing. I don't know how you do it. Uh, but recently you also uh, teamed up with the best-selling author, Mark Bittman, uh, in How to Eat. And I've put a link on, on about that book down below as well in the description. So in that, I believe you're answering, you know, questions. I haven't read it yet, but you're answering questions, common questions about fad diets and all sorts of other things. So um, I'd love to just ask you some quick fire questions, just very brief, quick, quick ones, if I may. Um, I'm an entrepreneur, busy entrepreneur or a health professional for that matter. What diet is best for me? Whatever diet, whatever high quality diet, you actually find fits comfortably into your lifestyle. Okay. Now, I, I'll tell you the one thing that doesn't belong on the menu is dogma. And, and, you know, most of the famous people in the world of nutrition have a particular diet they advance. What I've done, and, and I, I'm now working on the fourth edition of a nutrition textbook for health professionals. Nice. We're almost done with it, nutrition and clinical practice. I did a review paper in 2014, can we say what diet is best for health? This is what we're all about at Diet ID. This is what we're all about at the True Health Initiative. So, you know, having spent 30 years um, swimming in the relevant evidence, the basic theme of optimal eating for our kind of animal is perfectly clear. Real food, not too much, mostly plants, as Michael Pollan put it. But, you know, if your diet is largely made up of unprocessed or minimally processed vegetables, fruits, whole grains, beans, lentils, nuts, seeds, and if when you're thirsty, you mostly drink plain water, if you really did all of that, then whatever else you did was a lesser part of your diet, you'd be fine. So if that's all that you do, you're eating a high quality vegan diet, if you eat it in a balanced array. If you do that, plus a little bit of fish and a little bit of poultry and a little bit of meat and a little bit of dairy, it's a Mediterranean diet. And, you know, and a little bit of wine, that's fine too. If you do that, plus just a little bit of fish, it's a pescatarian diet, that's fine too. If you do that, plus a little bit of occasional poultry, high quality meat and fish, it's a flexitarian diet, also fine. 
the thing is that high quality diets are more alike than different, but they're variations on a theme. And I think it's the job of us experts in the content to tell you this is the theme. It's not negotiable because it, you know, it's a biological fact. Just like you know, wildebeest need to eat grass and lions need to eat wildebeest, your kind of animal needs to eat like this, it, not up for debate. But within this space, there are lots of choices and that can be entirely up to you. Now, I would argue for the sake of the planet, the further we can all go toward plant-based eating, the better. And I, I've shifted a lot of my focus to the, the overlap of what's good for people, good for the planet, because we're not, we're gonna have a really hard time being healthy if we don't have a planet to call home, just putting that out there. So, you know, I think that's a critical issue. So, you know, the more plant foods we rely on, the better, and, and you can do perfectly well on a plant exclusive diet, but, as a busy entrepreneur where it's hard to make time, it's hard to find time, change is difficult. And by the way, Diet ID fits beautifully into this space where we, we help you identify all the different kinds of diets that are right for your specific health objectives. Uh, but I would argue, get the theme right. And then within the theme, your choice based on preference, because a diet that you are not willing to stick to isn't going to do you any good. And by the way, talk to your family. You know, if there are other people that are part of your daily routine, do this with them. That's the other problem with a diet, dogma, restrictive, you've got to do it you know, my way or the highway. You know, people never do that with their families, never go on a diet with their families, but adapting your diet and lifestyle in a way that is an opportunity to love the food that loves you back, that's shareable, that's sustainable. And then in that unity of doing it together, there is the strength to stay the course. I love it, David. It's been an absolute pleasure uh, speaking with you. I will be in touch about Diet ID for sure, as well as Everest. I'd love to learn more about that. Um, I, just one last thing I'll say uh, is that, you know, you, you mentioned earlier, David, that COVID-19 has been an opportunity, uh, a kind of a, an opportunity for change where we could actually act on and improve our lifestyles. And along the way this past year, pregnancy rates have gone up as well. And that's another opportunity for taking action where not only are you improving your health for your own health and well-being and, and your child, but also your child's ongoing development later into their life as well. All the things we've talked about today can improve subsequent generations' health outcomes too. So uh, David, it's been an absolute pleasure. I'm going to pass back to you for, for a final word, but if you're listening and you're interested in getting involved in any of the topics we've been discussing today, from Diet ID to Everest, to joining me on Clubhouse with live and interactive, uh, and you'll be able to engage with me and others up, up on stage. We're live at uh, Thursdays, 7 p.m. UK time, which I believe is 2 p.m. in New York. Uh, do join us, Startup Therapy on Clubhouse. David, back over to you for any final words, and thank you so much. Well, I mostly just want to say thank you, Baruz. Pleasure to be with you. Great to have this conversation. It just so happens that other people are listening in, but it's, it, it would have been great even if they weren't. But in terms of those listening in, I, I thank you for providing me an audience of entrepreneurs because, you know, again, I, I really do believe, as my own practices indicate, in the power of innovation, in, in the incredible potential of doing well by doing good to advance the great objectives of public health. And, you know, again, I, I left academia, I believe in it so much. I, you know, I really think that, that good ideas and, you know, the sweat equity that's required of everybody who gets involved in an entrepreneurial venture um, can really make a difference. We can add years to lives. We can add life to years. We can 
help save our imperiled planet. We can help get through the remainder of this pandemic. We can help make sure we don't soon find ourselves in the next one. And if ever we do, that we're better prepared. All of that will depend largely on the keen eye of innovators, entrepreneurs who look at the world as it is and envision the way that it could be. So I, I thank you for providing me access to this audience. It's been a pleasure. Likewise, thank you, David. Sweet, I think I've stopped going live. <laughs> Just double check. David, how was that for you? It was great. Just, yeah, I enjoyed it thoroughly. That's all I can say. Likewise. Um, and and we can do a part two sometime because there were a lot of things we were going to talk about that we didn't talk about. I know, so, I know. Yeah, when it makes sense. But I will leave you there. And yeah, great to Thank see you. you, my friend. Likewise, likewise. We will speak soon. Very good. Take good care. Good night. Take care. Bye now.